What sends Lord Peter into a grim relapse of shell shock? Dorothy Sayers, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters. We couldn't do this without you. We really try to over-deliver and make your support worth your while. For a $5 monthly donation, you get a monthly code for $8 off any audiobook download. And you help to keep the podcast going strong. It really helps us out and gives us a revenue stream we can count on in this crazy time. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com today and become a financial supporter. Thank you so much. App users can hear the poem The Sick Rose by William Blake in the special features portion for this week's episode. I find it interesting, going through these ancient poems, how many of them deal with sickness. Now for our personal moment. Well, Scylla and I were talking the other day about our experiences when we were younger in buying Christmas trees. We both grew up in Utah, at the bottom of the Rocky Mountains. So when it was time to go get a Christmas tree, we would go to the tree lots. And they were always thrown up in parking lots or in a place where a fruit stand was previously in the fall. And they would have strings of those big incandescent Christmas bulbs going all the way around the perimeter so you knew where to go. You know, the big ones. The big We had the big ones for the house and we had the slightly smaller ones for our tree. Anyway, you'd go to pick out the tree and there'd be a, like a little shack for one person to just sit in. It's like the size of a chair. And they'd give you some something they termed hot chocolate. But it was really just brown water in a styrofoam cup with little flavoring and sugar and two or three niblets of marshmallows clinging to the side. And then the person inside the tree booth was dressed up as Santa, but it was usually like a 16-year-old kid with an attitude. No wonder, because he was huddled next to, like, the world's most dangerous space heater. It was like an exposed toaster. I don't know why more fires didn't happen in the early 80s, but uh, anyway. You'd look through, you'd buy your tree, and it seemed like, for our family anyway, everyone we always bought, we always wound up planning to put it in a corner. So, that was our Christmas-themed personal moment. And now, Whose Body? Part 5 of 7 by Dorothy Sayers Chapter 8 Lord Peter reached home about midnight, feeling extraordinarily wakeful and alert. Something was jigging and worrying in his brain. It felt like a hive of bees stirred up by a stick. He felt as though he were looking at a complicated riddle, of which he had once been told the answer, but had forgotten it, and was always on the point of remembering. Somewhere, said Lord Peter to himself, somewhere I've got the key to these two things. I know I've got it, only I can't remember what it is. Somebody said it, perhaps I said it. I can't remember where, but I know I've got it. Go to bed, Bunter. I shall sit up a little. I'll just slip on a dressing gown. 
Before the fire he sat down with his pipe in his mouth and his jazzy-coloured peacocks gathered about him. He traced out this line and that line of investigation. Rivers running into the sand. They ran out from the thought of Levy, last seen at ten o'clock in Prince of Wales Road. They ran back from the picture of the grotesque dead man in Mr. Thipps's bathroom. They ran over the roof and were lost, lost in the sand. Rivers running into the sand. Rivers running underground, very far down. Where Alf, the sacred river, ran, through caverns measureless to man, down to a sunless sea. By leaning his head down, it seemed to Lord Peter that he could hear them, very faintly, lipping and gurgling somewhere in the darkness. But where? He felt quite sure that somebody had told him once, only he had forgotten. He roused himself, threw a log on the fire, and picked up a book, which the indefatigable bunter, carrying on his daily fatigues amid the excitements of special duty, had brought from the Times Book Club. It happened to be Sir Julian Freke's Physiological Bases of the Conscience, which he had seen reviewed two days before. This ought to send one to sleep, said Lord Peter. If I can leave these problems to my subconscious, I'll be as limp as a rag tomorrow. He opened the book slowly, and glanced carelessly through the preface. I wonder if that's true about Levy being ill, he thought, putting the book down. It doesn't seem likely, and yet, dash it all, I'll take my mind off it. He read on resolutely for a little. I don't suppose mothers kept up with the Levy's march, was the next importunate train of thought. Dad always hated self-made people and wouldn't have them at Denver. And old Gerald keeps up the tradition. I wonder if she knew Freak well in those days. She seems to get on well with Milligan. I trust Mother's judgment a good deal. She was a brick about that bizarre business. I ought to have warned her. She said something once. He pursued an elusive memory for some minutes, till it vanished altogether with a mocking flicker of the tail. He returned to his reading. Presently another thought crossed his mind, aroused by a photograph of some experiment in surgery. If the evidence of Freak and that man Watts hadn't been so positive, he said to himself, I should be inclined to look into the matter of those shreds of lint on the chimney. He considered this, shook his head, and read with determination. Mind and matter were one thing. That was the theme of the physiologist. Matter could erupt, as it were, into ideas. You could carve passions in the brain with a knife. You could get rid of imagination with drugs and cure an outworn convention like a disease. The knowledge of good and evil is an observed phenomenon, attendant upon a certain condition of the brain cells, which is removable. That was one phrase. And again, conscience in man may, in fact, be compared to the sting of a hive bee, which, so far from conducing to the welfare of its possessor, cannot function 
even in a single instance, without occasioning its death. The survival value in each case is thus purely social. And if humanity ever passes from its present phase of social development into that of a higher individualism, as some of our philosophers have ventured to speculate, we may suppose that this interesting mental phenomenon may gradually cease to appear, just as the nerves and muscles which once controlled the movements of our ears and scalps have, in all save a few backward individuals, become atrophied, and of interest only to the physiologist. By Jove, thought Lord Peter idly, that's an ideal doctrine for the criminal. A man who believed that would never... And then it happened. The thing he had been half unconsciously expecting. It happened suddenly, surely, as unmistakably as sunrise. He remembered not one thing, not another thing, nor a logical succession of things, but everything, the whole thing, perfect, complete, in all its dimensions, as it were, and instantaneously, as if he stood outside the world and saw it suspended in infinitely dimensional space. He no longer needed to reason about it, or even to think about it. He knew it. There is a game in which one is presented with a jumble of letters, and is required to make a word out of them, as thus, C-O-S-S-S-S-R-I. The slow way of solving the problem is to try out all the permutations and combinations in turn, throwing away impossible conjunctions of letters, as SSSIRC or SCSRSO. Another way is to stare at the incoordinate elements until, by no logical process that the conscious mind can detect, or under some adventitious external stimulus, the combination S-C-I-S-S-O-R-S, scissors, presents itself with calm certainty. After that, one does not even need to arrange the letters in order. The thing is done. Even so, the scattered elements of two grotesque conundrums flung higgledy-piggledy into Lord Peter's mind resolved themselves, unquestioned henceforward. A bump on the roof of the end of the house, levying in a welter of cold rain, talking to a prostitute in the Battersea Park Road, a single ruddy hair, lint bandages, Inspector Sugg calling the great surgeon from the dissecting room of the hospital, Lady Levy with a nervous attack, the smell of carbolic soap, the Duchess's voice, not really an engagement, only a sort of understanding with her father. Shares in Peruvian oil, the dark skin and curved, fleshy profile of the man in the bath. Dr. Grimbold giving evidence. In my opinion, death did not occur for several days after the blow. India rubber gloves. Even faintly the voice of Mr. Appledore. He called on me, sir with an anti-vivisectionist pamphlet. All these things, and many others, rang together and made one sound. They swung together like bells in a steeple, with the deep tenor booming through the clamour. The knowledge of good and evil is a phenomenon of the brain, 
and is removable, removable, removable. The knowledge of good and evil is removable. Lord Peter Wimsey was not a young man who habitually took himself very seriously, but this time he was frankly appalled. It's impossible, said his reason feebly. Credo quia impossible, said his interior certainty with impervious self-satisfaction. All right, said conscience, instantly allying itself with blind faith. What are you going to do about it? Lord Peter got up and paced the room. Good Lord, he said. Good Lord. He took down Who's Who from the little shelf over the telephone and sought comfort in its pages. Freak, Sir Julian, K.T., C.R. 1916, G.C.V.O., C.R. 1919, K.C.V.O., 1917, K.C.B. 1918, M.D., F.R.C.P., F.R.C.S., Doctor on Med., Paris. D. Sai Cantab. Knight of Grace of the Order of St. John of Jerusalem. Consulting Surgeon of St. Luke's Hospital, Battersea. Born, Grillingham, 16 March, 1872. Only son of Edward Curzon Freak, Esquire, of Grill Court, Grillingham. Educated at Harrow and Trinity College, Cambridge. Colonel A.M.S., late member of the advisory board of the Army Medical Service. Publications. Some notes on the pathological aspects of genius, 1892. Statistical contributions to the study of infantile paralysis in England and Wales, 1894. Functional disturbances of the nervous system, 1899. Cerebrospinal diseases, 1904. The Borderland of Insanity, 1906. The Examination into the Treatment of Pauper Lunacy in the United Kingdom, 1906. Modern Developments in Psychotherapy, a Criticism, 1910. Criminal Lunacy, 1914. The Application of Psychotherapy to the Treatment of Shell Shock, 1917. An Answer to Professor Freud, with a description of some experiments carried out at the base hospital in Amiens, 1919. Structural modifications accompanying the more important neuroses, 1920. Clubs, Whites, Oxford and Cambridge, Alpine, etc. Recreations, Chess, Mountaineering, Fishing. Address, 282 Harley Street, and St. Luke's House, Prince of Wales Road, Battersea Park, Southwest 11. He flung the book away. Confirmation, he groaned, as if I needed it. He sat down again and buried his face in his hands. He remembered quite suddenly how, years ago, he had stood before the breakfast table at Denver Castle, a small, Peaky boy in blue knickers, with a thunderously beating heart. The family had not come down. There was a great silver urn with a spirit lamp under it, and an elaborate coffee pot boiling in a glass dome.
he had twitched the corner of the tablecloth, twitched it harder, and the urn moved ponderously forward, and all the teaspoons rattled. He seized the tablecloth in a firm grip and pulled his hardest. He could feel now the delicate and awful thrill as the urn and the coffee machine and the whole of the Sevres breakfast service had crashed down in one stupendous ruin. He remembered the horrified face of the butler and the screams of the lady guest. A log broke across and sank into a fluff of white ash. A belated motor lorry rumbled past the window. Mr. Bunter, sleeping the sleep of the true and faithful servant, was aroused in the small hours by a hoarse whisper. Bunter! Yes, my lord, said Bunter, sitting up and switching on the light. Put that light out, damn you, said the voice. Listen. Over there. Listen. Can't you hear it? It's nothing, my lord, said Mr. Bunter, hastily getting out of bed and catching hold of his master. It's all right. You get to bed quick and I'll fetch you a drop of bromide. Why, you're all shivering, and you've been sitting up too late. Hush! No! No! It's the water, said Lord Peter, with chattering teeth. It's up to their waists down there, poor devils, but listen. Can't you hear it? Tap, tap, tap. They're mining us, but I don't know where. I can't hear. I can't. Listen, you. There it is again. We must find it. We must stop it. Listen. Oh, my God, I can't hear. I can't hear anything for the noise of the guns. Can't they stop the guns? Oh, dear, said Mr. Bunter to himself. No, no, it's all right, Major. Don't you worry. But I hear it, protested Peter. So do I, said Mr. Bunter stoutly. Very good hearing, too, my lord. That's our own sappers at work in the communication trench. Don't you fret about that, sir. Lord Peter grasped his wrist with a feverish hand. Our own sappers, he said. Sure of that? Certain of it, said Mr. Bunter cheerfully. They'll bring down the tower, said Lord Peter. To be sure they will, said Mr. Bunter. And very nice, too. You just come and lay down a bit, sir. They're coming to take over this section. You sure it's safe to leave it, said Lord Peter. Safe as houses, sir, said Mr. Bunter, tucking his master's arm under his and walking him off to his bedroom. Lord Peter allowed himself to be dosed and put to bed without further resistance. Mr. Bunter, looking singularly unbunter-like in striped pyjamas, with his stiff black hair ruffled about his head, sat grimly watching the younger man's sharp cheekbones and the purple stains under his eyes. Thought we'd had the last of these attacks, he said. Been overdoing of himself. Asleep? He peered at him anxiously. An affectionate note crept into his voice. Bloody little fool, said Sergeant Bunter. Chapter 9 Mr. Parker, summoned the next morning to 110A Piccadilly, arrived to find the Dowager Duchess in possession. She greeted him charmingly. I'm going to take this silly boy down to Denver for the weekend, she said, indicating Peter, who was writing, 
and only acknowledged his friend's entrance with a brief nod. He's been doing too much, running about to Salisbury and places, and up till all hours of the night. You really shouldn't encourage him, Mr. Parker. It's very naughty of you, waking poor Bunter up in the middle of the night with scares about Germans, as if that wasn't all over years ago, and he hasn't had an attack for ages but there. Nerves are such funny things, and Peter always did have nightmares when he was quite a little boy, though very often, of course, it was only a little pill he wanted, but he was so dreadfully bad in 1918, you know, and I suppose we can't expect to forget all about a great war in a year or two, and really, I ought to be very thankful with both my boys safe. Still, I think a little peace and quiet at Denver won't do him any harm. Sorry you've been having a bad turn, old man, said Parker, vaguely sympathetic. You're looking a bit seedy. Charles, said Lord Peter, in a voice entirely void of expression. I'm going away for a couple of days because I can be no use to you in London. What has got to be done for the moment can be much better done by you than by me. I want you to take this. He folded up his writing and placed it in an envelope. To Scotland Yard immediately, and get it sent out to all the workhouses, infirmaries, police stations, YMCAs and so on in London. It's a description of Thipps's corpse, as he was before he was shaved and cleaned up. I want to know whether any man answering to that description has been taken in anywhere, alive or dead, during the last fortnight. You will see Sir Andrew Mackenzie personally, and get the paper sent out at once by his authority and you will tell him that you have solved the problems of the Levy murder and the Battersea mystery. Mr. Parker made an astonished noise, to which his friend paid no attention. And you will ask him to have men in readiness with a warrant to arrest a very dangerous and important criminal at any moment on your information. When the replies to this paper come in, you will search for any mention of St. Luke's Hospital or of any person connected with St. Luke's Hospital, and you will send for me at once. Meanwhile, you will scrape acquaintance, I don't care how, with one of the students at St. Luke's. Don't march in there blowing about murders and police warrants, or you may find yourself in Queer Street. I shall come up to town as soon as I hear from you, and I shall expect to find a nice, ingenious sawbones here to meet me. He grinned faintly. "'Do you mean you've got to the bottom of this thing?' asked Parker. "'Yes. I may be wrong. I hope I am. But I know I'm not.' "'You won't tell me?' "'Do you know?' said Peter. "'Honestly, I'd rather not. I say I may be wrong, and I'd feel as if I'd libeled the Archbishop of Canterbury.' "'Well, tell me, is it one mystery or two? One. You talked of the Levy murder. Is Levy dead? God, yes, said Peter, with a strong shudder. The Duchess looked up from where she was reading the Tatler. Peter, she said, is that your ague coming on again? Whatever you two are chattering about, you'd better stop it at once if it excites you. Besides, it's about time to be off. All right, mother, said Peter. He turned to Bunter standing respectfully in the door with an overcoat and suitcase. 
You understand what you have to do, don't you? He said. Perfectly. Thank you, my lord. The car is just arriving, your grace. With Mrs. Thipps inside it, said the Duchess. She'll be delighted to see you again, Peter. You remind her so of Mr. Thipps. Good morning, Bunter. Good morning, your grace. Parker accompanied them downstairs. When they had gone, he looked blankly at the paper in his hand. Then, remembering that it was Saturday, and there was need for haste, he hailed a taxi. "'Scotland Yard!' he cried. Tuesday morning saw Lord Peter and a man in a velveteen jacket swishing merrily through seven acres of turnip tops, streaked yellow with early frosts. A little way ahead, a sinuous undercurrent of excitement among the leaves proclaimed the unseen yet ever-near presence of one of the Duke of Denver's setter pups. Presently, a partridge flew up with a noise like a police rattle, and Lord Peter accounted for it very creditably for a man who, a few nights before, had been listening to imaginary German sappers. The setter bounded foolishly through the turnips and fetched back a dead bird. Good dog, said Lord Peter. Encouraged by this, the dog gave a sudden ridiculous gamble and barked, its ear tossed inside out over its head. Heel, said the man in velveteen, violently. The animal sidled up, ashamed. Fool of a dog, that, said the man in velveteen. Can't keep quiet. Too nervous, my lord. One of old black lasses, pups. Dear me, said Peter. Is the old dog still going? No, my lord. We had to put her away in the spring. Peter nodded. He always proclaimed that he hated the country, and was thankful to have nothing to do with the family estates. But this morning he enjoyed the crisp air, and the wet leaves washing darkly over his polished boots. At Denver, things moved in an orderly way. No one died sudden and violent deaths, except aged setters, and partridges, to be sure. He sniffed up the autumn smell with appreciation— there was a letter in his pocket, which had come by the morning post, but he did not intend to read it just yet. Parker had not wired. There was no hurry. He read it in the smoking room after lunch. His brother was there, dozing over the times. A good, clean Englishman, sturdy and conventional, rather like Henry VIII in his youth. Gerald, 16th Duke of Denver. The Duke considered his cadet rather degenerate, and not quite good form. He disliked his taste for police court news. The letter was from Mr. Bunter. 110 Piccadilly, Westminster. My Lord, I write. Mr. Bunter had been carefully educated, and knew that nothing is more vulgar than a careful avoidance of beginning a letter with the first person singular. "'as your lordship directed, "'to inform you of the result of my investigations. "'I experienced no difficulty in becoming acquainted "'with Sir Julian Freke's manservant. "'He belongs to the same club as the Honourable Frederick Arbuthnot's man, "'who is a friend of mine, and was very willing to introduce me. "'He took me to the club yesterday, Sunday, evening, "'and we dined with the man, whose name is John Cummings.' and afterwards I invited Cummings to drinks and a cigar in the flat. Your lordship will excuse me doing this, knowing that it is not my habit, 
but it has always been my experience that the best way to gain a man's confidence is to let him suppose that one takes advantage of one's employer. I always suspected Bunter of being a student of human nature, commented Lord Peter. I gave him the best old port, the deuce you did, said Lord Peter, having heard you and Mr. Arbuthnot talk over it. Hmm, said Lord Peter. Its effects were quite equal to my expectations as regards the principal matter in hand, but I very much regret to state that the man had so little understanding of what was offered to him that he smoked a cigar with it, one of your lordship's villary villas. You will understand that I made no comment on this at the time, but your lordship will sympathise with my feelings. May I take this opportunity of expressing my grateful appreciation of your lordship's excellent taste in food, drink, and dress? It is, if I may say so, more than a pleasure. It is an education to valet and buttle your lordship. Lord Peter bowed his head gravely. What on earth are you doing, Peter? Sitting there nodding and grinning like a what-you-may-call-it, demanded the Duke, coming suddenly out of a snooze. "'Someone writing pretty things to you, what?' "'Charming things,' said Lord Peter. The Duke eyed him doubtfully. "'Oh, to goodness you don't go and marry a chorus beauty,' he muttered inwardly, and returned to the Times. "'Over dinner I had set myself to discover Cummings' tastes, and found them to run in the direction of the music-hall stage. During his first class I drew him out in this direction,' your lordship having kindly given me opportunities of seeing every performance in London, and I spoke more freely than I should consider becoming in the ordinary way, in order to make myself pleasant to him. I may say that his views on women and the stage were such as I should have expected from a man who would smoke with your lordship's port. With a second glass I introduced the subject of your lordship's ten inquiries. In order to save time I will write our conversation in the form of a dialogue, as nearly as possible as it actually took place. Cummings. You seem to get many opportunities of seeing a bit of life, Mr. Bunter. Bunter. One can always make opportunities if one knows how. Ah, it's very easy for you to talk, Mr. Bunter. You're not married, for one thing. I know better than that, Mr. Cummings. So do I. Now, when it's too late... He sighed heavily, and I filled up his glass. "'Does Mrs. Cummings live with you at Battersea?' "'Yes. Her and me we do for my governor. Such a life. Not but what there's a char comes in by the day. But what's a char? I can tell you it's dull all by ourselves in that deed Battersea suburb. Not very convenient for the halls, of course.' "'I believe you. It's all right for you here in Piccadilly.' "'Right on the spot, as you might say. "'And I dare say your governor's off and out all night, eh? "'Oh, frequently, Mr. Cummings. "'I dare say you take the opportunity to slip off yourself every so often, eh? "'Well, what do you think, Mr. Cummings?' "'That's it. There you are. "'But what's a man to do with a nagging fool of a wife "'and a blasted scientific doctor for a governor "'who sits up all night cutting up dead bodies and experimenting with frogs?' Surely he goes out sometimes, not often, and always back before twelve. And the way he goes on, if he rings the bell and you ain't there, I'll give you my word, Mr. Bunter. 
temper? No, but looking through you, nasty-like, as if he was on that operating table of his and he was going to cut you up. Nothing a man could rightly complain of, you understand, Mr. Bunter. Just nasty looks. Not but what I say, he's very correct. Apologizes if he's been inconsiderate. But what's the good of that when he's been and gone and lost you your night's rest? How does he do that? Keeps you up late, you mean? Not him. Far from it. House locked up and household to bed at half past ten. That's his little rule. Not but what I'm glad enough to go as a rule. It's that dreary. Still, when I do go to bed, I like to go to sleep. What does he do? Walk about the house? Doesn't he? All night, and in and out of the private door to the hospital. You don't mean to say, Mr. Cummings, a great specialist like Sir Julian Freke does night work at the hospital? No, no. He does his own work. Research work, as you may say. Cuts people up. They say he's very clever. Could take you or me to pieces like a clock, Mr. Bunter, and put us together again. Do you sleep in the basement, then, to hear him so plain? Now, our bedroom's at the top. But, Lord, what's that? He'll bang the door so you can hear him all over the house. Ah, many's the time I've had to speak to Lord Peter about that. And talking all night. And baths. Baths! You may well say that, Mr. Bunter. Baths! <laughs> Me and my wife sleep next to the cistern room. Noise fit to wake the dead, all hours. When do you think he chose to have a bath? No later than last Monday night, Mr. Bunter. I've come to know them do it at two in the morning, Mr. Cummings. Have you now? Well, this was at three. Three o'clock in the morning we was waked up. I give you my word. You don't say so, Mr. Cummings. He cuts up diseases, you see, Mr. Bunter. And then he don't like to go to bed till he's washed the bacilluses off, if you understand me. Very natural, too, I dare say. But what I say is, the middle of the night's no time for a gentleman to be occupying his mind with diseases. These great men have their own way of doing things. Well, all I can say is, it isn't my way. I could believe that, your lordship. Cummings has no signs of greatness about him and his trousers are not what I would wish to see in a man of his profession. Is he habitually as late as that, Mr. Cummings? Well, no, Mr. Bunter, I will say, not as a general rule. He apologised too in the morning, and said he would have the cistern seen to, and very necessary, in my opinion, for the air gets into the pipes, and the groaning and screeching as goes on is something awful. It's like Niagara, if you follow me, Mr. Bunter. I give you my word. Well, that's as it should be, Mr. Cummings. One can put up with a great deal from a gentleman that has the manners to apologise. And, of course, sometimes they can't help themselves. A visitor will come in unexpectedly and keep them late, perhaps. That's true enough, Mr. Bonter. Now I come to think of it, there was a gentleman come in on Monday evening. Not that he came late, but he stayed about an hour and may have put Sir Julian behind hand. Very likely. Let me give you some more port, Mr. Cummings, or a little of Lord Peter's old brandy. A little of the brandy, thank you, Mr. Bunter. I suppose you have the run of the cellar here. He winked at me. Trust me for that, I said, and I fetched him the Napoleon. 
I assure your lordship it went to my heart to pour it out for a man like that. However, seeing we had got on the right track, I felt it wouldn't be wasted. I'm sure I wish it was always gentlemen that come here at night, I said. Your lordship will excuse me, I am sure, making such a suggestion. Good God, said Lord Peter. I wish Bunter was less thorough in his methods. Oh, he's that sort, his lordship, is he? He chuckled and poked me. I suppress a portion of his conversation here, which could not fail to be as offensive to your lordship as it was to myself. He went on. No, it's none of that with Sir Julian. Very few visitors at night, and always gentlemen, and going early as a rule, like the one I mentioned. Just as well. There's nothing I find more wearisome, Mr. Cummings, than sitting up to see visitors out. Oh, I didn't see this one out. Sir Julian let him out himself at ten o'clock or thereabouts. I heard the gentleman shout, Good night, and off he goes. Does Sir Julian always do that? Well, that depends. If he sees visitors downstairs, he lets them out himself. If he sees them upstairs in the library, he rings for me. This was a downstairs visitor, then? Oh, yes. Sir Julian opened the door to him, I remember. He happened to be working in the hall. Though now I come to think of it, they went up to the library afterwards. That's funny. I know they did, because I happened to go up the hall with coals, and I heard them upstairs. Besides, Sir Julian rang for me in the library a few minutes later. Still, anyway, we heard him go at ten, or it may have been a bit before. He hadn't only stayed about three-quarters of an hour. However, as I was saying, there was Sir Julian banging in and out of the private door all night, and a bath at three in the morning, and up again for breakfast at eight. It beats me. If I had all his money, curse me if I'd go poking about with dead men in the middle of the night— I'd find something better to do with my time, eh, Mr. Bunter? I need not repeat any more of his conversation, as it became unpleasant and incoherent, and I could not bring him back to the events of Monday night. I was unable to get rid of him till three. He cried on my neck and said I was a bird, and you were the governor for him. He said that Sir Julian would be greatly annoyed with him for coming home so late, but Sunday night was his night out, and if anything was said about it, he would give notice. I think he will be ill-advised to do so, as I feel he is not a man I could conscientiously recommend if I were in Sir Julian Freak's place. I noticed that his boot-heels were slightly worn down. I should wish to add, as a tribute to the great merits of your lordship's cellar, that although I was obliged to drink a somewhat large quantity both of the Cockburn sixty-eight, in the 1800 Napoleon, I feel no headache or other ill effects this morning. Trusting that your lordship is deriving real benefit from the country air, and that the little information I have been able to obtain will prove satisfactory, I remain, with respectful duty to all the family, obediently yours, Mervyn Bunter. "'You know,' said Lord Peter thoughtfully to himself, I sometimes think Mervyn Bunter's pullin' my leg. What is it, Soames? A telegram, my lord. Parker, said Lord Peter, opening it. It said, Description recognised Chelsea Workhouse. Unknown vagrant injured street accident Wednesday week. Died Workhouse Monday. Delivered St. Luke's same evening by order Freak. Much puzzled. 
Parker. Hooray! said Lord Peter, suddenly sparkling. I'm glad I've puzzled Parker. Gives me confidence in myself. Makes me feel like Sherlock Holmes. Perfectly simple, Watson. Dash it all, though. This is a beastly business. Still, it's puzzled Parker. What's the matter? asked the Duke, getting up and yawning. Marching orders, said Peter. Back to town. Many thanks for your hospitality, old bird. I'm feeling no end better. Ready to tackle Professor Moriarty or Leon Kestrel or any of them. I do wish you'd keep out of the police courts, grumbled the Duke. It makes it so dashed awkward for me, having a brother making himself conspicuous. Sorry, Gerald, said the other. I know I'm a beastly blot on the scutcheon. Why can't you marry and settle down and live quietly, doing something useful? said the Duke, unappeased. Because that's a washout, as you perfectly well know, said Peter. Besides, he added cheerfully, I'm being no end useful. You may come to want me yourself, you never know. When anybody comes blackmailing you, Gerald, or your first deserted wife turns up unexpectedly from the West Indies, you'll realize the pull of having a private detective in the family. Delicate private business arranged with tact and discretion. Investigations undertaken. Divorce evidence a specialty. Every guarantee. <laughs> Come now. Ass, said Lord Denver, throwing the newspaper violently into his armchair. When do you want the car? Almost at once. I say, Jerry, I'm taking Mother up with me. Why should she be mixed up in it? Well, I want her help. I call it most unsuitable, said the Duke. The Dowager Duchess, however, made no objection. I used to know her quite well, she said, when she was Christine Ford. Why, dear? Because, said Lord Peter, there's a terrible piece of news to be broken to her about her husband. Is he dead, dear? Yes, and she will have to come and identify him. Poor Christine. Under very revolting circumstances, mother. I'll come with you, dear. Thank you, mother, you're a brick. Do you mind getting your things on straight away and coming up with me? I'll tell you about it in the car. Chapter 10 Mr. Parker, a faithful though doubting Thomas, had duly secured his medical student, a large young man like an overgrown puppy, with innocent eyes and a freckled face. He sat on the Chesterfield before Lord Peter's library fire, bewildered in equal measure by his errand, his surroundings, and the drink which he was absorbing. His palate, though untutored, was naturally a good one, and he realized that even to call this liquid a drink, the term ordinarily used by him to designate cheap whiskey, post-war beer, or a dubious glass of claret in a Soho restaurant, was a sacrilege. This was something outside normal experience, a genie in a bottle— the man called Parker, whom he had happened to run across the evening before in the public house at the corner of Prince Wales Road, seemed to be a good sort. He had insisted on bringing him round to see this friend of his, who lived splendidly in Piccadilly. Parker was quite understandable. He put him down as a government servant, or perhaps something in the city. The friend was embarrassing. He was a lord to begin with, and his clothes were a kind of rebuke to the world at large. He talked the most fatuous nonsense, certainly, 
but in a disconcerting way. He didn't dig into a joke and get all the fun out of it. He made it in passing, so to speak, and skipped away to something else before your retort was ready. He had a truly terrible manservant, the sort you read about in books, who froze the marrow in your bones with silent criticism. Parker appeared to bear up under the strain, and this made you think more highly of Parker. He must be more habituated to the surroundings of the great than you would think to look at him. You wondered what the carpet had cost, on which Parker was carelessly spilling cigar ash. Your father was an upholsterer, Mr. Piggott, of Piggott and Piggott, Liverpool, and you knew enough about carpets to know that you couldn't even guess at the price of this one. When you moved your head on the bulging silk cushion in the corner of the sofa, it made you wish you shaved more often and more carefully. The sofa was a monster, but even so it hardly seemed big enough to contain you. This Lord Peter was not very tall. In fact, he was rather a small man. But he didn't look undersized. He looked right. He made you feel that to be six foot three was rather vulgarly assertive. He felt like mother's new drawing-room curtains, all over great big blobs. But everybody was very decent to you, and nobody said anything you couldn't understand, or sneered at you. There were some frightfully deep-looking books on the shelves all round, and you had looked into a great folio Dante which was lying on the table, but your hosts were talking quite ordinarily and rationally about the sort of books you read yourself, clinking good love stories and detective stories. You had read a lot of those, and could give an opinion, and they listened to what you had to say, though Lord Peter had a funny way of talking about books too, as if the author had confided in him beforehand, and told him how the story was put together, and which bit was written first. It reminded you of the way old Freak took a body to pieces. "'The thing I object to in detective stories,' said Mr. Piggott, "'is the way fellows remember every bloomin' thing that's happened to him within the last six months. They're always ready with their time of day, and was it raining or not, and what they were doing on such and such a day.' Reel it all off like a page of poetry. But one ain't like that in real life. Do you think so, Lord Peter? Lord Peter smiled, and young Piggott, instantly embarrassed, appealed to his earlier acquaintance. You know what I mean, Parker. Come now. One day is so like another, and I'm sure I couldn't remember. Well, I might remember yesterday, perhaps. But I couldn't be certain about what I was doing last week if I was to be shot for it. No said Parker, and evidence given in police statements sounds just as impossible. But they don't really get it like that, you know. I mean, a man doesn't just say, last Friday I went out at 10 a.m. to buy a mutton chop. As I was turning into Mortimer Street, I noticed a girl of about 22 with black hair and brown eyes, wearing a green jumper, check skirt, Panama hat and black shoes, riding a Royal Sunbeam cycle at about ten miles an hour, turning the corner by the church of St. Simon and St. Jude, on the wrong side of the road, riding towards the marketplace. It amounts to that, of course, but it's really wormed out of him by a series of questions. And in short stories, said Lord Peter. It has to be put in statement form, because the real conversation would be so long and twaddly and tedious, and nobody would have the patience to read it. "'Writers have to consider their readers, if any, you see.' "'Yes,' said Mr. Piggott. 
but I bet you most people would find it jolly difficult to remember, even if you ask them things. I should, of course. I know I'm a bit of a fool, but then most people are, ain't they? You know what I mean. Witnesses ain't detectives, they're just average idiots like you and me. Quite so, said Lord Peter, smiling as the force of the last phrase sank into its unhappy perpetrator. You mean, if I were to ask you in a general way what you were doing, say, a week ago today, you wouldn't be able to tell me a thing about it offhand? No, I'm sure I shouldn't. He considered. No, I was in the hospital as usual, I suppose. And being Tuesday, there'd be a lecture on something or other. Dashed if I know what. And in the evening I went out with Tommy Pringle. So that must have been Monday. Or was it Wednesday? I tell you, I couldn't swear to anything. You do yourself an injustice, said Lord Peter gravely. I'm sure, for instance, you recollect what work you were doing in the dissecting room on that day, for example. Lord, no, not for certain. I mean, I dare say it might come back to me if I thought for a long time. But I wouldn't swear to it in a court of law. I'll bet you half a crown to sixpence, said Lord Peter, that you'll remember within five minutes. Oh, I'm sure I can't. We'll see. Do you keep a notebook of the work you do when you dissect? Drawings or anything? Oh, yes. Think of that. What's the last thing you did in it? Well, that's easy, because I only did it this morning. It was leg muscles. Yes. Who is the subject? An old woman of sorts. Died of pneumonia. Yes. Turn back the pages of your drawing book in your mind. What came before that? Oh, some animals. Still legs. I'm doing motor muscles at present. Yes, that was old Cunningham's demonstration on comparative anatomy. I did rather a good thing of a hare's leg, and a frog's, and rudimentary legs on a snake. Yes. Which days does Mr. Cunningham lecture? Friday. Friday, yes. Turn back again. What comes before that? Mr. Pickett shook his head. Do your drawings of legs begin on the right-hand page or the left-hand page? Can you see the first drawing? Yes. Yes. I can see the date written at the top. It's a section of a frog's hind leg on the right-hand page. Yes. Think of the open book in your mind's eye. What is opposite to it? This demanded some mental concentration. Something round, coloured. Oh, yes, it's a hand. Yes. You went on from the muscles of the hand and arm to leg and foot muscles? Yes, that's right. I've got a set of drawings of arms. Yes. Did you make those on the Thursday? No. I'm never in the dissecting room on Thursday. On Wednesday, perhaps? Yes. I must have made them on Wednesday. Yes, I did. I went in there after we'd seen those tetanus patients in the morning. I did them on Wednesday afternoon. I know I went back because I wanted to finish them. I worked rather hard, for me. That's why I remember. Yes, you went back to finish them. When had you begun them, then? Why, the day before. The day before. That was Tuesday, wasn't it? I've lost count. Yes, the day before. Wednesday. Yes, Tuesday. Yes. Were they a man's arms or a woman's arms? Oh, a man's arms. Yes. Last Tuesday, a week ago today, 
You are dissecting a man's arms in the dissecting room. Sixpence, please. By Jove. Wait a moment. You know a lot more about it than that. You've no idea how much you know. You know what kind of man he was. Oh, I never saw him complete, you know. I got there a bit late that day, I remember. I'd asked for an arm specially, because I was rather weak in arms and watts, as the attendant had promised to save me one. Yes. You have arrived late and found your arm waiting for you. You are dissecting it, taking your scissors and slitting up the skin and pinning it back. Was it very young, fair skin? Oh, no, no. Ordinary skin, I think, with dark hairs on it. Yes, that was it. Yes. A lean, stringy arm, perhaps, with no extra fat anywhere? Oh, no. I was rather annoyed about that. I wanted a good muscular arm, but it was rather poorly developed, and the fat got in my way. Yes. A sedentary man who didn't do much manual work. That's right. Yes, you dissected the hand, for instance, and made a drawing of it. You would have noticed any hard calluses. Oh, there was nothing of the sort. No. But should you say it was a young man's arm, firm young flesh and limber joints? No, no. No. Old and stringy, perhaps. No. Middle-aged, with rheumatism. I mean, there was a chalky deposit in the joints, and the fingers were a bit swollen. Yes. A man about fifty. About that. Yes. There were other students at work on the same body. Oh, yes. Yes. And they made all the usual sort of jokes about it? I expect so. Oh, yes. You can remember some of them. Who is your local funny man, so to speak? Tommy Pringle. What was Tommy Pringle doing? Can't remember. Whereabouts was Tommy Pringle working? Over by the instrument cupboard, by Sink C. Yes. Get a picture of Tommy Pringle in your mind's eye. Piggott began to laugh. I remember now. Tommy Pringle said the old Sheeny. Why did he call him Sheeny? I don't know, but I know he did. Perhaps he looked like it. Did you see his head? No. Who had the head? Oh, I don't know. Oh, yes, I do, though. Old Freak bagged the head himself, and little Bounceable Bins was very cross about it, because he'd been promised a head to do with old Scrooger. I see. What was Sir Julian doing with the head? He called us up and gave us a jaw on spinal hemorrhage and nervous lesions. Yes. Well, go back to Tommy Pringle. Tommy Pringle's joke was repeated, not without some embarrassment. Quite so. Was that all? No. The chap who was working with Tommy said that sort of thing came from overfeeding. I deduced that Tommy Pringle's partner was interested in the alimentary canal. Yes. And Tommy said, if he'd thought they'd feed you like that, he'd go to the workhouse himself. Then the man was a pauper from the workhouse? Well, he must have been, I suppose. Are the workhouse paupers usually fat and well-fed? Well, no. Come to think of it, not as a rule. In fact, it struck Tommy Pringle and his friend that this was something a little out of the way in a workhouse subject. Yes. And if the alimentary canal was so entertaining to these gentlemen, I imagine the subject had come by his death shortly after a full meal. Yes. Oh, yes. He'd have to, wouldn't he? Well, I don't know, said Lord Peter, 
That's in your department, you know. That would be your inference from what they said. Oh, yes, undoubtedly. Yes, you wouldn't, for example, expect them to make that observation if the patient had been ill for a long time and fed on slops. Of course not. Well, you see, you really know a lot about it. On Tuesday week, you were dissecting the arm muscles of a rheumatic, middle-aged Jew of sedentary habits who had died shortly after eating a heavy meal of some injury producing spinal hemorrhage and nervous lesions and so forth, and who was presumed to come from the workhouse? Yes. And you could swear to those facts, if need were? Well, if you put it that way, I suppose I could. Of course you could. Mr. Piggott sat for some moments in contemplation. I say, he said at last, I did know all that, didn't I? Oh, yes, you knew it all right, like Socrates' slave. Who's he? A person in a book I used to read as a boy. Oh, does he come in the last days of Pompeii? No, another book. I dare say you escaped it. It's rather dull. I never read much except Henty and Fenimore Cooper at school. But have I got rather an extra good memory then? You have a better memory than you credit yourself with. Then why can't I remember all the medical stuff? It all goes out of my head like a sieve. Well, why can't you? said Lord Peter, standing on the hearth rug and smiling down at his guest. Well, said the young man, the chaps who examine one don't ask the same sort of questions you do. No? No. They leave you to remember all by yourself, and it's beastly hard. Nothing to catch hold of, don't you know? But I say, how did you know about Tommy Pringle being the funny man? And I didn't, till you told me. No. I know, but how did you know he'd be there if you did ask? I mean to say, I say, said Mr. Piggott, who was becoming mellowed by influences themselves, not unconnected with the alimentary canal. I say, are you rather clever, or am I rather stupid? No, no, said Lord Peter. It's me. I'm always asking such stupid questions. Everybody thinks I must mean something by them. This was too involved for Mr. Piggott. Never mind, said Parker soothingly. He's always like that. You mustn't take any notice. He can't help it. It's premature senile decay, often observed in the families of hereditary legislators. Go away, Whimsy, and play us the beggar's opera or something. That's good enough, isn't it? said Lord Peter, when the happy Mr. Piggott had been dispatched home after a really delightful evening. I'm afraid so, said Parker. But it seems almost incredible. There's nothing incredible in human nature, said Lord Peter, at least in educated human nature. Have you got that exhumation order? I shall have it tomorrow. I thought of fixing up with the workhouse people for tomorrow afternoon. I shall have to go and see them first. Right you are. I'll let my mother know. I begin to feel like you, Whimsy. I don't like this job. I like it a deal better than I did. You are really certain we're not making a mistake? Lord Peter had strolled across to the window. The curtain was not perfectly drawn, and he stood gazing out through the gap into lighted Piccadilly. At this he turned round. If we are, he said, we shall know tomorrow, and no harm will have been done. 
but I rather think you will receive a certain amount of confirmation on your way home. Look here, Parker, do you know, if I were you, I'd spend the night here. There's a spare bedroom. I can easily put you up. Parker stared at him. Do you mean I'm likely to be attacked? I think it very likely indeed. Is there anybody in the street? Not now. There was half an hour ago. When Piggott left? Yes. I say. I hope the boy is in no danger. That's what I went down to see. I don't think so. Fact is, I don't suppose anybody would imagine we'd exactly made a confidant of Piggott. But I think you and I are in danger. You'll stay? I'm damned if I will, Whimsy. Why should I run away? Bosh, said Peter. You'd run away all right if you believed me, and why not? You don't believe me. In fact, you're still not certain I'm on the right track. Go in peace, but don't say I didn't warn you. I won't. I'll dictate a message with my dying breath to say I was convinced. Well, don't walk. Take a taxi. Very well. I'll do that. And don't let anybody else get into it. No. It was a raw, unpleasant night. A taxi deposited a load of people returning from the theatre at the block of flats next door, and Parker secured it for himself. He was just giving the address to the driver when a man came hastily running up from a side street. He was in evening dress and an overcoat. He rushed up, signalling frantically. Sir, sir, dear me, why, it's Mr. Parker. How fortunate. If you would be so kind, summoned from the club, the sick friend, can't find a taxi, everyone going home from the theatre. If I might share your cab, you are returning to Bloomsbury? I want Russell Square, if I might presume, a matter of life and death. He spoke in hurried gasps, as though he had been running violently and far. Parker promptly stepped out of the taxi. "'Delighted to be of service to you, Sir Julian,' he said. "'Take my taxi. I am going down to Craven Street myself, but I'm in no hurry. Pray make use of the cab.' "'It's extremely kind of you,' said the surgeon. "'I am ashamed. That's all right,' said Parker cheerily. "'I can wait.' He assisted Freak into the taxi. "'What number? Twenty-four Russell Square, driver, and look sharp.' The taxi drove off. Parker remounted the stairs and rang Lord Peter's bell. "'Thanks, old man,' he said. "'I'll stop the night after all.' "'Come in,' said Whimsy. "'Did you see that?' asked Parker. "'I saw something. What happened exactly?' Parker told his story. "'Frankly,' he said, I've been thinking you a bit mad, but now I'm not quite so sure of it. Peter laughed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Bunter, Mr. Parker, will stay the night. Look here, Whimsy. Let's have another look at this business. Where's that letter? Lord Peter produced Bunter's essay in dialogue. Parker studied it for a short time in silence. You know, Whimsy, I'm as full of objections to this idea as an egg is of meat. So am I, old son. That's why I want to dig up our Chelsea pauper. But trot out your objections. Well? Well, look here, I don't pretend to be able to fill in all the blanks myself. But here we have two mysterious occurrences in one night, and a complete chain connecting the one with another through one particular person. 
It's beastly, but it's not unthinkable. Yes, I know all that. There are one or two quite definite stumbling blocks. Yes, I know. But see here, on the one hand, Levy disappeared after being last seen looking for Prince of Wales Road at nine o'clock. At eight next morning, a dead man, not unlike him in general outline, is discovered in a bath in Queen Caroline Mansions. Levy, by Freak's own admission, was going to see Freak. By information received from Chelsea Workhouse, a dead man, answering to the description of the Battersea corpse in its natural state, was delivered that same day to Freak. We have Levy with a past, and no future, as it were, an unknown vagrant with a future, in the cemetery, and no past, and Freak stands between their future and their past. That looks all right. Yes, now further, Freak has a motive for getting rid of Levy, an old jealousy. Very old, and not much of a motive. People have been known to do that sort of thing. You're thinking that people don't keep up old jealousies for twenty years or so. Perhaps not. Not just primitive brute jealousy. That means a word and a blow. But the thing that rankles is hurt vanity. That sticks. Humiliation. And we've all got a sore spot we don't like to have touched. I've got it. You've got it. Some blighter said hell knew no fury like a woman scorned. Sticking it on the women, poor devils. Sex is every man's loco spot. You needn't fidget, you know it's true. He'll take a disappointment, but not a humiliation. I knew a man once who'd been turned down, not too charitably, by a girl he was engaged to. He spoke quite decently about her. I asked what had become of her. Oh, he said, she married the other fellow and then burst out, couldn't help himself. Lord, yes, he cried, to think of it, jilted for a Scotchman. I don't know why he didn't like the Scots, but that was what got him on the raw. Look at Freak. I've read his books. His attacks on his antagonists are savage, and he's a scientist, yet he can't bear opposition, even in his work, which is where any first-class man is most sane and open-minded. Do you think he's a man to take a beating from any man on a side issue? On a man's most sensitive side issue? People are opinionated about side issues, you know. I see red if anybody questions my judgment about a book. And Levy, who was nobody twenty years ago, romps in and carries off Freak's girl from under his nose. It isn't the girl Freak would bother about. It's having his aristocratic nose put out of joint by a little Jewish nobody. There's another thing. Freak's got another side issue. He likes crime. In that criminology book of his, he gloats over a hardened murderer. I've read it, and I've seen the admiration simply glaring out between the lines whenever he writes about a callous and successful criminal. He reserves his contempt for the victims or the penitents or the men who lose their heads and get found out. His heroes are Edmond de la Pomeray, who persuaded his mistress into becoming an accessory to her own murder, and George Joseph Smith, of Brides in a Bath fame, who could make passionate love to his wife in the night and carry out his plot to murder her in the morning. After all, he thinks conscience is a sort of vermiform appendix. Chop it out and you'll feel all the better. 
Freak isn't troubled by the usual conscientious deterrent. Witness his own hand in his books. Now again. The man who went to Levy's house in his place knew the house. Freak knew the house. He was a red-haired man, smaller than Levy, but not much smaller, since he could wear his clothes without appearing ludicrous. You have seen Freak. You know his height. About five foot eleven, I suppose. And his auburn mane. He probably wore surgical gloves. Freak is a surgeon. He was a methodical and daring man. Surgeons are obliged to be both daring and methodical. Now take the other side. The man who got hold of the Battersea corpse had to have access to dead bodies. Freak obviously had access to dead bodies. He had to be cool and quick and callous about handling a dead body. Surgeons are all that. He had to be a strong man to carry the body across the roofs and dump it in at Thipps's window. Freak is a powerful man and a member of the Alpine Club. He probably wore surgical gloves, and he let the body down from the roof with a surgical bandage. This points to a surgeon again. He undoubtedly lived in the neighborhood. Freak lives next door. The girl you interviewed heard a bump on the roof at the end house. That is the house next to Freak's. Every time we look at Freak, he leads somewhere, whereas Milligan and Thipps and Crimplesham and all the other people we've honoured with our suspicion simply led nowhere. Yes, but it's not quite so simple as you make out. What was Levy doing in that surreptitious way at Freak's on Monday night? Well, you have Freak's explanation. Rot, whimsy. You said yourself it wouldn't do. Excellent, it won't do. Therefore, Freak was lying. Why should he lie about it unless he had some object in hiding the truth? Well, but why mention it at all? Because Levy, contrary to all expectation, had been seen at the corner of the road. That was a nasty accident for Freak. He thought it best to be beforehand with an explanation, of sorts. He reckoned, of course, on nobody's ever connecting Levy with Battersea Park. Well, then, come back to the first question. Why did Levy go there? I don't know. But he was got there somehow. Why did Freak buy all those Peruvian oil shares? I don't know, said Parker in his turn. Anyway, went on Whimsy, Freak expected him, and made arrangements to let him in himself, so that Cummings shouldn't see who the caller was. But the caller left again at ten. Oh, Charles, I did not expect this of you. This is the purest suggery. Who saw him go? Somebody said good night and walked away down the street. And you believe it was Levy because Freak didn't go out of his way to explain that it wasn't. Do you mean that Freak walked cheerfully out of the house to Park Lane and left Levy behind, dead or alive, for Cummings to find? We have Cummings' word that he did nothing of the sort. A few minutes after the steps walked away from the house, Freak rang the library bell and told Cummings to shut up for the night. Then, well, there's a side door to the house, I suppose. In fact, you know there is. Cummings said so, through the hospital. Yes. Well, where was Levy? Levy went up into the library and never came down. You've been in Freak's library. Where would you have put him? In my bedroom next door. Then that's where he did put him. 
But suppose the man went in to turn down the bed. Beds are turned down by the housekeeper, earlier than ten o'clock. Yes, but Cummings heard Freak about the house all night. He heard him go in and out two or three times. He'd expect him to do that anyway. Do you mean to say that Freak got all that job finished before three in the morning? Why not? Quick work. Well, call it quick work. Besides, why three? Cummings never saw him again till he called him for eight o'clock breakfast. But he was having a bath at three. I don't say he didn't get back from Park Lane before three, but I don't suppose Cummings went and looked through the bathroom keyhole to see if he was in the bath. Parker considered again. How about Crimplesham's parsnay? he asked. That is a bit mysterious, said Lord Peter. And why Thipps's bathroom? Why, indeed. Pure accident, perhaps, or pure devilry. Do you think all this elaborate scheme could have been put together in a night, Whimsy? Far from it. It was conceived as soon as the man who bore a superficial resemblance to Levy came into the workhouse. He had several days. I see. Freak gave himself away at the inquest. He and Grimbold disagreed about the length of the man's illness. If a small man, comparatively speaking, like Grimbold, presumes to disagree with a man like Freak, it's because he is sure of his ground. Then, if your theory is sound, Freak made a mistake. Yes, a very slight one. He was guarding, with unnecessary caution, against starting a train of thought in the mind of anybody, say the workhouse doctor. Up till then, he'd been reckoning on the fact that people don't think a second time about anything, a body, say, that's once been accounted for. What made him lose his head? A chain of unforeseen accidents, levies having been recognised, the mother's son having foolishly advertised in the Times his connection with the Battersea end of the mystery. Inspector Parker, whose photograph has been a little prominent in the illustrated press lately, seen sitting next door to the Duchess of Denver at the inquest. His aim in life was to prevent the two ends of the problem from linking up, and there were two of the links literally side by side. Many criminals are wrecked by over-caution. Parker was silent. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Whose Body? Part 5 of 7 by Dorothy Sayers. If you have enjoyed this book, please visit our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and sign up to be a financial supporter. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>